Well, as Jared mentioned, we are starting a brand new series called Deconstruct. And I don't know about you, I I grew up with Legos. Did you guys, anybody else growing up with Legos? I love to put them together. The first time you would get Legos, like you would get it, at least me, I would follow the instructions the first time and see what I was supposed to build, you know? And then as soon as I was kind of done, I would tear it all apart, deconstruct it, and then try to build something else. See what else I could do uh, with these pieces. And I think even as a kid, this idea of like building and tearing down and reconstructing and deconstructing was always kind of part of my DNA. Even, even so much so as I got into high school, uh, I, I remember my first real car that I had. It was an Isuzu Pup, which stood for pickup truck. Uh, it sounded like a little, it was a little baby truck. But uh, when I got this truck, it had a, a old radio player, no tape player or anything, just radio player. And the first thing I wanted to do was buy a radio to put in a brand new stereo to put in the, the truck. And I got one, I don't even remember where I got it from, for sure, maybe in a hand-me-down from somewhere else. But instead of actually paying somebody to put it in, I said, you know what I can do? I can figure out how to take the old one out, deconstruct this, mark the wires, figure out everything, and install the new one. And, and the truth is, it worked in theory that I got the old one out and as I started to put the new one in, I thought I got all of the wires connected until I turned the engine on and smoke started coming everywhere and I had to turn it off and I figured out, I thought I took it back out, I put it back together. I finally, after a few tries, got it to work, but it would, every time I would like turn the lights on or the blinkers on, the radio station would change. There are all kinds of things that were not hooked up correctly, but I learned as I was doing this what worked and what didn't to eventually one day I got it installed uh, correctly where it was actually, I, I think it was installed correctly. It worked correctly. And a lot of times I think we should be doing the same thing with our faith. And it's kind of what we're talking about and why we're using this title of deconstruct as we look at Hebrews of how do we actually begin to look at some of the key questions to understand the why of what our faith is all about. And the truth is, in, in our culture right now, there are a lot of questions about Christianity. I don't know if you follow uh, trends that are going on. I, I'm on TikTok occasionally. There's this whole group that are like deconstruction Christianity groups on TikTok that are talking about why and this. I've never even thought about this or I've heard this. Why, have we, why, is the, why was I never taught this in church? And there's a whole, what's called a deconstruction movement that's going on in faith right now where people are asking questions that they've never been asked before. And honestly, when I was growing up, we were taught a number of things about Christianity. When, and when I kind of put these in order, we, we were taught one, how to become a Christian, right? If you grew up in church, you were probably taught how to become a Christian. You do this, you pray this prayer, this is how you become a Christian. And that was the most important. And, and what we were told to do was to tell other people how to become Christians. And then we were told the things that you can't do as Christians. All right, now that you're a Christian, here's your new moral code, things that you are not allowed to do, your list of, of don'ts, right? So a Christian doesn't do this, and here's your list. And then we were taught things that we must do as Christians. You need to read your Bible this much. You need to go to church. You need to give tithes. You need to do all of these things. Show up on, on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Here are the things that you must do. And then we were also taught what your reward was 
for being a Christian, which usually boil down to heaven, right? Your, your life may be no fun here, but when you die, you'll get to go to a good place instead of the bad place, right? This was kind of what I was taught. And then finally, we were taught how to avoid the bad or non-Christian things around us and kind of isolate ourselves and say, oh, that's evil, that's bad, I need to stay away uh, from that. And it kind of led to an isolationist mentality. But rarely, if ever, when I was thinking back to, to my Christian experience, was I taught or challenged to think about why. Why even embrace Christianity? Why even think about it? I remember one time when I, I did youth ministry for a number of years, and one year we would always do these camps or different events, conferences during the year. And in one year I did a, a t-shirt for our event and on the front it said, I'm a Christian. And then on the back it said, ask me why. And, uh, and we had our students wear these and it was so funny. I, I thought I was so cool at the moment. Uh, but when I, when I gave them that shirt, I watched them. And even when I put it on, I was like, you know what? I don't even know if I know the real answer to this. I can tell you how to become a Christian. I can tell you like heaven and things like that. But why? Like it really began to even challenge my faith. And I was like, I told the kids after, I was like, you have to be careful when you wear these shirts because you may get asked a question that you don't know the answer to. And I'm not sure I even know the answer to yet. And so this idea of, you know, it's okay for us to, to ask this question why. And this is why I believe so many of people are deconstructing their faith today. They're simply for the first time beginning to ask the question, why? Why should I believe the Bible, believe in God or believe in Jesus? Why would a God of love send people to hell? Why is there so much suffering if God is all powerful? Why do Christians often talk more about what they hate and disagree with than what they love? These aren't questions of how or what, they're questions of why, which brings us to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a great book for us to study as we tackle this idea of understanding the why of our faith. And let me tell you what Hebrews isn't, first of all. Hebrews, first of all, is not a book of theology. Like a book of Romans would be a good book when you think about theology of, of what do we believe. That's, that's not what the book of Hebrews is. It's, you're not going to read it and go, okay, here are the 10 things I believe. Hebrews also is not a book of methodology, which many of the Paul's other letters or other church father's letters like Peter and James, those kind of books, those talk about, again, methodology of how to become a Christian, what we do as Christians. Instead, Hebrews, again, is not a book of theology or methodology. It is a book of philosophy. It's a book of philosophy. And here's what philosophy does. Philosophy causes us to seek the answer to the question, why? Why should I even consider these things? Why should I even consider them? And you know what we do oftentimes as believers, even as a church, a lot of times we argue about theology. We try to argue with people and say, no, you should believe this. We make distinctions based on methodology. We have a denomination for this because they baptize a certain way or they approach communion a certain way and we have all different methodologies. But the truth is, how often do we deeply consider the philosophy of Christianity, the why? We should, we should be 
asking why first and then what and how. Because the why brings authenticity into the how we do it and the what we do. You know what, I can, I can live a life, if you give me a rule book that I've gotta follow for a couple of weeks, and you gotta tell me, hey, if, you, if you're gonna do this, this is how you have to do it. You can, you can stick me in an environment, like you, you could throw me in a job, a factory job for a couple of weeks and say, this is what you have to do and this is how you do it. And I could pick it up, I could do the motions, but if I'm not bought into the why I'm doing this, if the pay is not enough, if I am not bought into the company, if I'm not bought into the why, eventually the how and the what that I'm doing are not gonna be authentic. They're gonna go, it's gonna feel fruitless. It's gonna feel empty. And I think for many that have been in the faith for a long time or have considered the faith part of the life, they have, they've been told for so long the how and the what to do, but the authenticity of the why and the passion, the philosophy underneath it has never been there. And so why is Hebrews a good book to look at? And I wanna give us a few things to think about today. Today is just kind of an intro uh, to this book and this series, then we're gonna celebrate communion uh, together as a way to, to prepare ourselves uh, for that. But I wanna give you a few things to think about about why Hebrews is a good book to look at the why and the philosophy behind what it means to, to be a Christ follower. One is the time frame. The time frame in which Hebrew was written was before, most scholars would say before 70 AD. And why do we know 70 AD? Because 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And so the book of Hebrews is written as if sacrifices are still going on in the temple, as if it is still functioning. So we, we believe it was written 70, before 70 AD. And, and we believe the crucifixion of Christ was in between 30 and 40 AD. And so what this gives us is it, it represented an early view of Jesus, one of the earliest views of Jesus. This was not a book written hundreds of years later about people who had never even knew or really even connected with Jesus, who were just contemplating and saying, let me build a philosophy of Jesus off of something I never really experienced. The book of Hebrews is one of the earliest documented, what we can tell, earliest views of Jesus. And so when this philosophy is being written and, and talked about and communicated, it is philosophy very closely connected to when Jesus actually lived, what Jesus said, how he lived, and how it was currently impacting that culture. It, it is not something, again, that even I today, 2,000 years later, would do, let me, let me write a new philosophy of Jesus. And, what he, and a lot of people do that. There's people constantly coming up with new philosophies. This is the one that is closest and nearest to when he actually lived and was based around those who actually knew him and connected with him. So the time frame is important in understanding this. The second thing is the authorship is important. And there's a couple things about the authorship is that we know is it's the only book in the New Testament that has never had an attribution attached to it. It's an unknown book. There are a lot of people who have guessed at what it is, but in the book itself, there's nowhere that it says, this is who wrote it. And even when it was early, passed around early, it was never, there was never one name attached to it. Now there's some possibilities. Let me tell you what some of the possibilities are. Many people think it was written by Paul. Uh, 
And I, I would say is probably, Paul was probably not the writer, the way it's written, uh, the Greek without getting into all the details. It doesn't match a lot of his other writings. Paul often and almost always introduced himself in the letter. He doesn't do that here. But while he probably wasn't the exact writer, much of the content may be attributed to some of his teachings and, and things that he would teach in the synagogues and the temples around. Some people think that, that Luke, the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, could be this writer. He was a very educated uh, man, and he also, you know, a lot of the structure and how it's put together matches that as well. And he could have basically put together a compilation of teachings to go along with his story of the gospel, uh, his history book, and then his philosophy book. So it's basically, some people believe he wrote a trilogy, right? Here's the story of Jesus, uh, the gospel of Luke. Here's what his followers did historically after Jesus. And now here's the philosophy of Jesus. And so I could, I could certainly see that as an option. There, there's another a couple of people. One is Priscilla. Priscilla is mentioned in the New Testament uh, in the book of Acts as one of the followers of, uh, of Paul and an early convert to Christ. And her and her husband, Priscilla and Aquila, it says when Barnabas came to teach, he was teaching in one way and they instructed him in a, new, in a better way to talk about Jesus. They basically were teaching people how to go about communicating the philosophy of Jesus. And this is why some people say that Priscilla, uh, she, there was other pieces that are attached to her that they would say, maybe this was uh, what they used kind of as their textbook to help new people understand who Jesus was. The other ideas out there is a guy named Clement. Clement is not mentioned in the Bible, but he is basically one of the first bishops uh, that was around uh, in Rome during that time. And there's some other writings that he has out there that are similar to this. Now I say all this just to help you understand this. Uh, we don't have to figure out who wrote Hebrews. I think it's a good thing that we don't. I think it's a good thing that it's a broad book because in a sense a philosophy book is not one person's philosophy. And what this helps us understand is this represented to us a wide view of Jesus. When you read through the book, there's a lot of we's in the book. We do this, we say this. And so it is not just one person. This is not the view of Paul or view of Luke. It is, it's a broad view. And I think that's important in understanding this philosophy. When we look at the philosophy of Jesus, it's not only the earliest connected to him, but it's also broad and wide in nature. And then the third thing that we see about this that we see about the book of uh, Hebrews is the audience that it was written to. And the audience, what we see is it was written to a Hebrew Jewish congregation or congregations that were in the midst of embracing Christianity. So they basically were, uh, these weren't people that were not atheists, agnostic. They, were, they weren't haters of God. They weren't completely pagan and devoid of understanding a monolithic God or God of the Bible. These were people who had a view of God, had a connection with the God of what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew God, and they grew up in a Jewish culture and were now trading one set of beliefs or one philosophy of living for a new philosophy of living, stepping in to a Christian view. And so as people transitioning from one way of thinking to a new way of thinking, from one type of belief 
to a new type of belief. And why is this important? Because what this represented was the superior view of Jesus. And when I say superior, it's not like I won and you lost. It's not like Jesus is like spiking the ball in somebody's face and being like, I'm the winner. It is, it's the supreme ultimate view that there is, there is a fulfilled view of Jesus. Jesus is all. He's supreme. He is superior. So you take these three things when you look at when and who wrote it and to who it was written to, and we get this beautiful example that shows us that we have this early, authentic view of the philosophy of Jesus, this wide breadth of people that came together to communicate this, and one that was communicating something different, not just an add-on, and it brings us to answer this question, and what the book of Hebrews does is it answers the question, why Jesus? Why Jesus? Why even consider him? And this brings us back to the idea of this, where we get to begin this study. Because I don't care how long you're sitting in here, if, if you've been sitting in here and you're a follower of Christ for as long as you can remember, or you are just beginning the search, or you're trying to figure out what that is, the book of Hebrews is a beautiful example for us to begin to start with the right philosophy and go, why should I even consider Jesus? Why should I, why should I consider him over Muhammad, over Buddha, over whatever else, what other belief system I have? So why? So what I want us to do before, because next week we're going to jump into chapter one, I want to give you some ways that I'm going to challenge you and we hopefully we'll remind you as we go through this of how do we approach this philosophy of Jesus? How do we approach this idea of who Jesus is and, and what it is? And, and I think to get the most out of this, we have to approach it a couple of ways. And we even see this in some, some of the transition uh, verses of Hebrews that we're going to look at quickly this morning. And the first thing I want to challenge you, how do you approach the philosophy of Jesus, is a couple things. You have to come with an open mind and an honest intent. An open mind and an honest intent. Uh, you, you may be here on one way or the other. You may be saying, you know, I've never considered Jesus. I don't really want to look that deeply. But to come in with an open mind and say, you know what? But let me consider what this philosophy will teach me. But a lot of us in here maybe have a closed mind, not because we're against the gospel, but because we think we know it all already. We think we've got a philosophy that we've created our own philosophy, not the actual, the early, the one attached to the earliest or the, the broad and this beautiful view of Jesus' spirit. We've created our own philosophy of Jesus that fits into how I like to think and how I like to operate. And so I'll, I'll make Jesus in my image the philosophy of Jesus that operates best for me. And so I want to challenge you wherever you are to come with an open mind to be able to say, you know what? There's something out there I don't know. But also with an honest intent to, to actually listen and to hear and to, and to say, I will consider this. And this is what Hebrews 1.1 reminds us because it says this. Long ago, the writers were saying it many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. It's a beautiful reminder, the very opening of this book that says, don't forget, God has spoken to us for a long time. He's told us about who he is. He's revealed himself to us in many ways, in many kinds of, through prophets, through the law, all kinds of different ways that he has revealed himself to us. God has been faithful to speak. Will we be faithful to listen with an open mind and an honest intent? 
And so I think to get the most out of philosophy of this book of this philosophy of Jesus, we have to have an open mind and honest intent on how we approach it. Not, not with me wanting to fold it, mold it into my way of thinking, but allow my thinking to be molded by it. The second way I think we have to approach this philosophy of Jesus is to allow your pride to be challenged and your prejudices to be confronted. We both have both, we all have both of these. I would love a day that I wake up not prideful. Doesn't happen, right? I wake up and you know what the first thing I usually think about is myself. What's going on with me today? Like how's how's this affecting me or how am I feeling today? We wake up self-centered. And we we also have lived our lives where we have prejudices and this I'm not even talking about racial things like that, just how we view the world and even how we view God and how we view who Jesus is. And so for us to approach and get an honest view of this philosophy that we're gonna look at over these next few months is to say, you know what? My way of thinking is not always right. It's not. I have to be willing to tell myself that and allow that to be impacted in my life. And what I have always experienced, what I have built my prejudicial thinking around does not always have to be. What always was doesn't always have to be the way that I've always thought is not always right. And if we can approach scripture and this philosophy with this mindset, it will help us engage. And Hebrews 2, 1 tells us this. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. We must pay much closer attention. He's already setting, the writer's already setting us up for this. Pay close attention. Allow your mind to be shaped and allow your prejudice to be confronted. Third thing is this, the way we approach this philosophy, here's some things to expect. You're gonna get frustrated, expect frustrations. You can't have your pride confronted and your prejudices pushed back on without some frustrations. You're going to feel frustrated, but to do that, once you've expect frustrations, you can then embrace growth. So the way growth happens. Growth is not usually good growth. Healthy growth is painful. It's difficult to change a way that you think to change the way that you approach life or do you view a situation or do you view God or do you view yourself is sometimes frustrating, but it does bring about growth. And in Hebrews 6.1, they're, they're, the writers are telling us to think about it already in this way. They says, therefore, let us begin to leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Like there are some things that we're gonna get, make sure we understand, and then we're gonna grow from here. We're gonna move on to maturity. Maturity is not just knowing who Christ was and what he did, it's an understanding of philosophy of how that impacts us as we move forward. And then finally, the best way for us to approach this philosophy is to continue the conversation with God and continue the conversation with others. So talk about it with God, have, have dialogue with God about what we're gonna hear over this journey and have dialogue with others. Whether that's in small groups, are just in finding somebody to go on this journey with you and say, hey, let's talk about what we, this philosophical issue we talked about on Sunday. And Hebrews 12.1 reminds us of this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, there are other people that have been on this journey, that have walked through this, and we are not alone in doing it. This is not something you have to do alone. But I want to end with just these two thoughts that will help guide us 
I think, for moving forward into the book of Hebrews. And the first one is this. When we think about the why, I want you to know this. God is not afraid of your why questions. He's not. He's not. There's not a question you're going to ask God that he hasn't been asked before, that he hasn't already considered deeply, that he hasn't already revealed an answer to. You're not going to catch him off guard. Be like, God, why is there suffering in this world? He's like, oh, I haven't thought about that one. Like, what? They're suffering? I've been taking a vacation for the last 16 millennia. Like, no, I mean, we aren't going to catch him off guard. Or why do I I wake up doubting sometimes? Why do I have doubts? Do you think that's the first time he's ever heard that from somebody who's honestly seeking after him? No, you aren't going to surprise him. God is not scared or afraid of your why questions. But I think this is the harder part. We've got to learn not be, to be afraid to hear God's, hear the answers. How does it, don't be afraid to hear God's why answers, the answers that he's going to give us. Sometimes I don't ask questions because I really don't want to know the answer. I remember I used to do this with my parents all the time growing up, right? I was like, I, I know they're going to say no, or if I have to ask this, like, I'm going to get an answer I don't want, so I'm just going to avoid it. I'm going to avoid it as long as I can. And I think we do that with God. Sometimes we do it with our spouses. Sometimes we do it with our kids or bosses, every, where we just avoid it because we don't think we're, don't think we're going to like the answer. What I want to tell you about this is God's answer, this philosophy of Jesus that we're going to look at, this, this earliest representation, this broad and deep and superior view. We may not always like the answer, but the answer will always move us in the right direction. And I want us to close this morning by the time of communion together. And I wanted us to do this because we, we normally do it when we end a series, but I thought this morning would be a good way to both end this series that we did of Jesus in 3D and looking at him as prophet, priest, and king, but also as a way of kind of consecrating our hearts and minds, moving into this study to say, you know what? I want to come with an authentic spirit, with an open mind. I want to set aside my pride and my prejudice. I want to to approach you, even even though it's going to be frustrating at times, but I want to frustrate and I want to grow. And I want to do this with other people and with God. And communion is a beautiful way to celebrate that. So it just says a reminder, communion is a beautiful celebration of the sacrifice of Christ. It says in scripture that on that night he gathered with his disciples. This was right before he was arrested to be crucified. And it said that at the table there, he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it around. And as he did, he said, this is my body broken for you. The bread that we take today is symbolic of the sacrificial nature of the, the body of Christ, the physical nature of Christ, giving himself completely for us, holding nothing back. I think that's such a beautiful reminder as we think about the philosophy of Jesus that he held nothing back from us. Even his own body was destroyed for us. But then it says he took the the cup and poured the wine and passed it around. And as he did so, uh, he said, this is my blood shed for you. And not just the the inner part, but the the blood that all those men and women sitting around that room would have known what he was talking about. There's the blood shed was was for forgiveness of sins. It was for restoration to God. And he was saying that my life is not only my body, my physical is not only given for you, but the the spiritual part of who I am, the the blood sacrifice for you to restore and redeem you. I give it to you freely. 
as well. And so it's a beautiful reminder as we come to the table to take the, the bread and the juice and to say, today I come as a way to remember what Christ has done, but also to motivate me to engage in what is to come as we look at this series. So I want to challenge you as you come to the table today in a minute, I'm going to pray for us. Then I'm going to invite you to come and you might want to come with a friend or family and you can take the, the bread and, and wine together and then we're going to close uh, with a song. But I thought this morning for me, I'm going to come to the table in, a, in two senses. One, in remembrance, but I'm also going to start to reflect on the questions that I'm carrying right now. Like what why question can I bring this morning? Why is this happening? Why am I struggling with this? Why haven't I understood this? Our God, help me to open my mind. And so I'm bringing my questions to the table this morning as well, out of a sense of faith that says I'm ready to receive your answers. So I wanna pray for us, and then the table's open. You can stand and come and come again as family or friends uh, together. You might want to pray with one another and then take the elements and then we'll close together. God, we are grateful for this book that we get to spend the, the next season of, in our faith family studying and looking at and diving into and being challenged by. God, it's not an easy book. It's much easier to talk about what to do or what we believe than actually the why behind it. And so God, as we celebrate communion this morning, would you not just remind us of who you are and what you've done for us, but also remind us that you are willing to take our questions, for us to struggle with you and to walk on a journey of frustration and growth and eventually abundance. So God, we come to this table, we offer ourselves to you, and we remind ourselves of the beautiful sacrifice you made for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome to come.